Now, I want you to just imagine, you know, it's around Christmas time. You get all those cards from people, pictures and everything. Sometimes you get letters. So imagine you're open up, going through the mail. It takes me usually two weeks to check my mail. And so I get like a stack of them in my mail and everything. So I'm going through all these Christmas uh, cards and letters from families. And so imagine you get one with a note attached to it that reads like this. It's been a great year for the lamplighters. Greg has been hoping for a promotion, but what a surprise when the CEO came to his desk and begged him to take over the company. The whole office chipped in and gave the family a week to Paris to celebrate. Wasn't that nice? Of course, Jenny has been busy as well. You probably saw the news that she rescued a school bus full of children from a kidnapper, armed only with a plastic comb. Nice to think, too, that the poem she wrote for last year's holiday letter will be chiseled into the wall of the Library of Congress. <laughs> the twins did so well at the state tap dance championship that Spielberg is crafting a movie around them. Well, Greg Jr.'s science fair project was a topic of much excitement in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, if you're being honest with me and I'm being honest with you, when you get a Christmas letter like that in the mail, your first instinct is to take it, light it on fire, and stomp on the ashes ceremoniously. So why does it bother me so much? Why does it bother every person? You all know what this is like. You've had letters from that family, friends, or whatever. <laughs> and, but why does it bother us so much? Why does it get under our skin to read something like that? The answer is very simple, simpler than you would imagine. Pride. Having an excessively high view of yourself, as we all struggle with, and having an excessively high view of your own importance in the world. Focusing only on yourself and making everything about you which we all have a tendency to do from time to time. We read a letter like this. I mean, this is not even about us. This letter is not even about us at all. And yet we find some way that some entirely different family, not even thinking of us, we find a way to make it all about us. About our, how our family's not accomplishing those things and doing those things. Why our lives look the way it does and why it doesn't look like that. And we have thoughts about that because we're so focused on ourselves and our own self-importance. And many of us struggle with selfish, focus on, consumed with the self, self-absorbed narcissistic traits. I'm not saying everybody's a narcissist. That would be a pretty insane, bold claim. But I'm just saying we struggle with certain narcissistic traits. These are self-centered things that we have. And, and as a society, when we look at our society, not speaking of anybody individually here, we look at our society, these traits, self-absorbed, narcissistic traits, are only increasing over time. And it's a real problem because if you are the center of your own universe, you are the, every, you're the all-important thing, then God isn't. And that's really the spiritual problem. It's increasing in our society. And this is according to the article in the Natural Library of Medicine. Does a narcissistic ep epidemic exist in our modern Western societies? This is what they found. The endorsement rate for the statement, I am an important person, has increased from 12% in 1963 to 77 to 80% wow. in 1992 in adolescence. And I bet in 2023, I want to make sure it's the right year, I was <laughs> in, this, in this year, I bet it's increasing even more. 
with the advent of social media, as we'll see. Now, this increase of an overblowing of self-importance, narcissistic traits, and making everything about you, being self-absorbed, this is just, you look at any article, any study, anything you look, just Google it. You're going to find a massive increase of this, center of the universe. According to the Newport Institute article uh, titled The Social Media Narcissism in Young Adults, research shows today that young adults are more narcissistic than ever before. More than 10% of people in their 20s are believed to suffer from a subclinical narcissism, which is this view of not having a, having a low degree of moral accountability, having an excessively overblown high sense of self, a God complex, as someone put it, which only God himself can have. This is according to psychology today and in the social media is contributing to this problem. Here's a way it's specifically contributing to this problem. In a 2018 study, researchers tackled 74 participants ages 18 to 34 over four months and used the MPI to quantify. It's a way to measure narcissistic traits. Their narcissistic traits. Hence, they found that participants who pose large quantities of photos and selfies... Everything's about the self, iPhone, I this, selfie. Selfie showed 25% increase in narcissism. Specifically, those who use Facebook and other platforms that focus on, on images rather than words became more narcissistic over time. So because of social media and the focus on the self, we tend to what? Focus on ourselves. And so we live in this culture as Christians, and we take these self-absorbed ideas into the church, into the reading of even the Bible. I have seen many Christians use the Bible like it's a divine fortune cookie that is some sort of self-help Tony Robbins manual for you to live your best life now, to improve it so you can be the hero of your life. Every Old Testament story is all about you and what you're accomplishing. You're the hero. How you can become greater, more powerful, rich, and famous. You know, just because a person reads the Bible and quotes a Bible doesn't mean they're doing it properly. That, that is to say, the way the author and God, the ultimate author, intends it to be. If you are excessively narcissistic, self-absorbed, focus on yourself, you will make yourself, you will find a way to make yourself the hero of the Bible. You will, you will find yourself manipulating the text. And it, it's really interesting you see this in this movie, The Book of Eli, with Denzel Washington. I love that movie. It's a little dark, but, you know, it has a good, I think it has a good message about the Bible. It, I'm a big Denzel Washington fan. He's a Christian celebrity. He's my favorite celebrity right now. He passed up Mel Gibson a long time ago, in my estimation. Just being honest with you. Uh, so anyways, he's my favorite, Denzel. Uh, I watch all of his movies. And so I talked about him last Sunday, too. You guys, this guy's pastor really loves Denzel Washington. He's got... <laughs> But in, in, the, in the movie, The Book of Eli, you have, it's a post-apocalyptic society, and the, Denzel Washington is this, is this guy who's trying to protect the Bible. He's trying to get the Bible to the right place where people can copy it and translate it and have it all over again so people can be blessed by the Word of God. And this evil like post-apocalyptic warlord is trying to take it from him so he can use it for his own narcissistic, manipulative purposes. This is what he says. This is a quote. He says, it's not just a book. It's a weapon aimed right at the hearts and mind of the desperate. It will give us control of them. If we want to rule more than just one small town, we have to have it. People will come from all over. They will do exactly what I tell them if the words are in that book. See, it's all about him controlling people. 
It's bad, evil, self-serving, narcissistic, and manipulative. And this is not just something that villains do in movies. This is something that pastors do. Pastors have manipulated the Bible. It's pretty sad. I saw one pastor who was not trained in, in theology or knew how to study the Bible use the Bible in self-serving, manipulative ways. I, was, I listen to sermons. Just I just sometimes pick a random church, listen to a sermon. Just I'm, I'm curious that way. And so I was listening to one pastor. I couldn't believe this was happening in the sermon itself. The pastor was saying, you know, you know, he's talking about the, the walls of Jericho, how the armies had to surround it playing music seven times. He's like, you know, them going around the you know, walls of Jericho seven times, that doesn't make any sense. Why would God have them do that? And you know, it just shows them that you have to be obedient to whatever God says. And he says, you have to listen to me and whatever I say, even if it doesn't make sense to you, you have to listen to me. Just like the Israelites listen to God going around Jericho seven times and the building crumbled. You see, that is all about him. He's manipulating people and, and spiritually abusing them, saying, you got to listen to me. I'm the pastor. I call the shots here, just like the walls of Jericho. And so you can see how this self-absorbed, making me about the Bible and everything, it can distort the word of God. And what we're going to see this morning is the Apostle Paul utterly destroys that perspective. He destroys it by pointing us to the gospel and the person and work and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Crushes this self-absorbed reading of the Bible and this view of church by pointing us to the gospel. Starting our verse-by-verse -verse study in Romans 15, 1, this chapter. We who are strong, didn't have issues over the, the issues of eating and drinking, People who have an obsession about that or have struggles with certain days or eating, drinking alcohol, as we looked at last time. So the strong, people who have the right view of their faith, have an obligation to bear, to tolerate with the failings of the weak. People who are, who are struggling in their faith and struggling to make sense of what they can eat and drink and not please ourselves. Not about you. It's about others. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build them up. It's all a focus on the other person. That's Paul's point is about the church. We in the church, we should serve and care for those, even people who disagree with us who you might think have wrong views of things. We're to serve them, we're to bear with them, we're to care for them, we're to be with them and to hold them up in their difficulty and to love them, even if they disagree with us. And the rationale behind this, the point behind all this, is the church is not about you it's, or me, it's about Jesus. It's about God. It's about serving others. We don't go to church to get stuff from people, to extort things from others. We don't go to church for entertainment. We go to church to serve God, to serve people, and that blesses, we'll find, in our souls. That fulfills us. Church isn't about you because we're not worshiping you. We're worshiping God in church. And in worshiping God, we are mindful of serving others, not bickering and fighting over small, silly things that don't even matter in eternity. They don't really make much difference. And so, but if it is all about you and your people are trying to bicker and fight over small things, then you're really going to church to serve yourself and not God. That's the issue. We shouldn't look and view church as if it were a fast food restaurant or a restaurant. Well, you know, the service was slow, but the food was good. It's all about, you know, you're a consumer. It's all about you and what, that's not how church is. Rather, our perspective should be outward focused, reaching the lost, loving others, bearing with the weaknesses of, of others, and not obsessing about our rights, what we deserve, and this and that. No, it's a servant attitude. 
and Paul kind of motivates us. It's hard to do that because I'm, we're all naturally focused on ourselves, myself included. But Paul brings us to the gospel to remind us of this kind of self-sacrificial idea from Christ when what he did for us. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's referring to the cross here. So when he's talking about not pleasing himself, the cross of Christ, the sacrifice he made. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, and that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Reading it properly. And so this is the, yeah, as I said, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. He wasn't serving or pleasing himself. It was all about others, not about himself. Him sacrificing and dying for us about others. He was glorifying the will of the Father and sacrificing for us. So when Paul says, because this can be confusing, when you read it, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's quoting from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament scriptures from Psalm 69.9. It says, for the zeal for your house has consumed me. Jesus quotes that in John chapter 2. And the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. So whoever reproached you has fallen on me. And so this verse is not about you. It's not about the Christian life. Don't make it about you what you're facing in life. It's none of those things. This verse is about Christ, specifically him sacrificing on the cross, the work that he did on the cross for us. When he took on the sins and the reproaches of the world against God. Every single sin that you have ever committed or will commit was put on the cross on Jesus Christ. That's why it says the reproaches of those who reproach you. He is talking about people sinning against, reproaching God the Father, scorning God the Father, and that those reproaches against God falling on Him. I think it's hard for us to read this because we tend to trivialize sin. Oh, I just messed up. It's no big deal. I sinned. Yeah, I, everybody lies. Everybody gets mad in the 15 freeway. Everybody gets impatient with their kids. You know, we, we trivialize things. We make it so, we make sin so common. We all do it. And that's true, we do. But we, we mustn't forget what sin is all about. When we sin, it's just not some small thing. But in fact, according to the Bible, we are committing cosmic treason. We are going against God and him, himself. We are rebelling against God. Every time you sin, every time I sin, which is every day, I am rebelling against God. God is goodness. He is a standard of goodness. I am going against who God is. Every time I sin, I'm saying, God, I know better than you. I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. Every time we sin, we don't, we don't just sin against just a mere finite person, we sin against an infinitely holy and just God every time we sin. It's that, I mean, to think that we know better than an infinitely good being that knows everything, that is the height of self-centeredness. That is the height of pride and foolishness and rebellion, and yet we struggle with sin every day. So when we sin, we are reproaching God. We are scorning God every time we sin. It's not just like, oops, accident. No, it's not like that. No, we are disapproving what God is saying and we're approving of our ideas over God's. And so, as I said, we are committing cosmic treason against an infinitely holy God. That is a big deal when you think about it. We, we just go along our day. We don't think about it, but it is a big, big deal. It's not a small thing. 
And so Paul is drawing our attention then to what happened through this Old Testament quotation. He's drawing us to the cross, as scholars grant, as they read this verse, that the reproaches that you have made against God, those sins went on Jesus. They went on him on the cross. That's why he says, it fell on me. The reproaches against God fell on me. That's Jesus talking. Jesus Christ. This is what it says, confirming this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus gets our sin, our reproach. We get his perfect obedience and righteousness and by faith. That's a gospel message. So to disregard that is to disregard God and to scorn him. And Jesus... I didn't deserve punishment, but he got our punishment that we deserve for scorning God. It was put on his shoulder so that we can be forgiven of all of our sins. And so this verse, this one verse, people might think it's about, no, it's about Jesus. And so this is not just one isolated verse. You're like, oh, this is just one verse in the Bible, Nate. That doesn't mean the Old Testament's about Jesus. Well, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, about how we should view the whole Bible the whole shooting match, the whole enchilada. We should view the whole thing through the prism of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul says. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We view the whole Bible through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the gospel. And so we're going to see Paul reference this in Romans 15, verses 4 through 6, to, to show us the significance of the Old Testament. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the endurance, through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So we have encouragement through these scriptures, hope through it, and hope in the gospel. It's referring to that's why it provides hope for us. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant to you to live in harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament's all about living and being focused on Christ, bringing peace to our church, bringing peace to our world, that together you may, with one voice, the, the unity there the gospel brings, one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see there's a tight connection here between Jesus and the Old Testament. Former days here refers to the former days of the Old Testament scripture here. It doesn't refer to the New Testament scripture. That was not written at the time. So when it says scripture here, it is talking about the Old Testament. That's what Paul is focusing on. He's quoting the Old Testament and says, those things were written for your hope and encouragement in Jesus Christ. Now, people don't understand what the whole point of the New Testament is. So what a lot of people do is like, I don't know what's going on in that Old Testament. It's kind of confusing. So I'm just not going to read it. I've heard people say that. Now, biggest problem is people usually dive in and they go into the Old Testament in such a way, as I've referenced, to make it all about them and to make it a divine fortune cookie from heaven, to make it some, some sort of self-help manual from heaven, all about them and their moral improvement. Like you're watching some you know, popular uh, motivational speaker on YouTube. They make the whole Old Testament into that. And they tie that into Old Testament laws and everything and prophecies and everything. And, and so they, I've heard people take it one step further and say, yeah, and so, you know, the Old Testament, this is a rule book on how to live my best life now. I'm going to take this as a rule book. And I've also heard people say, yeah, well, we should follow everything in the Old Testament. And so the, uh, the state of Israel, you know, what, what it was in the Old Testament, all those Old Testament laws in Exodus, we should bring those into modern society and carry over all the laws and the death penalties and everything. And so the, the, uh, 
the Old Testament becomes this blueprint on, on you know, rules and how you should live tonight, today and how you should live in society today. And so, you know, this, I, I know one group of people that think that we should usher in the kingdom and, and bring in these Old Testament laws into our society. Now, I'm not denying, by the way, that there's not laws in the Old Testament that are in the New Testament that we should follow. I'm not saying like, oh yeah, the Ten Commandments, yeah, just get rid of those, you know, it's okay to murder people. I'm not saying that. But I'm not saying, I'm saying primarily, that is not the point of the Old Testament. That is not the primary issue here. And by the way, no one follows the Levitical laws about sacrifices and wearing two different types of fabric, which I think I am today. So no one, no one follows those, those laws in the Mosaic Covenant, even people who think it's a rule book. They don't follow you know, all, all the laws about the, the ceremonial purity. So, but, but we know this specifically because in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 13, we find is that the Mosaic Covenant as this rule book, as it functioned in Israel, has expired. The Mosaic Covenant that was given at Mount Sinai and all those laws following that are not carried over to the New, new Covenant, all those laws are done with. All those laws are finished up because the Mosaic Covenant is done and finished. Paul says it better than anybody could in 2 Corinthians 7, 13, or 3, 7 through 13. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. You catch that? Being brought to an end. Not continuing, brought to an end. Doesn't mean it doesn't have relevance today. It's written for our instruction, our learning today. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For the glory was for there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, Moses. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed in that glory. Indeed, in this case, what was once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because a glory that surpasses it, the new covenant. For it was being brought to an end with glory much more will what is permanent have glory since we have such hope we are being bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. How much clearer can you get? I mean, it says it like three times, brought to an end, brought to an end, brought to an end. I mean, like three times. I mean, it's just repetitive. And so, yeah, the Old Testament story is not a moral improvement plan for you, you know, to live in the next 10 years or whatever it is. No, that is not the center of it. And the second understanding of the Old Testament, I've kind of already alluded to it, but is to make you the center of the story. Make every story about you. Every Old Testament story is about you and how you are the hero, right? So the story about Noah... That's all about how, you know, God wants you to prepare and have a plan for the end of the world or a flood or whatever. Story of Moses is all about, you know, he parted the Red Sea for Moses. So, you know what? God's going to remove the obstacles in your life. Everything's about you. Or dare to be a Daniel, you know. God will tame those lions in your life. <laughs> whatever that. Who do you take to be a, a lion anyways? But so it's very, it's a very narcissistic Reading of the Bible, you're like, oh, Pete, hey, people don't believe that. That's crazy. Like, what a, what a, this view of the Old Testament. But I need to tell you, I'm going to read from a real pastor, real church. This is from somebody that this is what, this is how they're preaching from the Old. I call this, by the way.
in the Bible is called exegesis. You exegete, you get out the meaning. I call this narcissus. You get out the meaning of how it all applies to you. It's all about me, you know. Instead of the selfie, okay. So this is what a pastor said to his congregation. In order for David to become David, he needed a Saul. Stop despising Saul. You need Saul. You need people to hate on you. You need the people to tear you up. Thank God for Saul because if you got a Saul, that makes you David. What? No. No, it does not. How does that work at all? You see how incredibly narcissistic and self-centered that is? Every verse is not about you and your life and your moral improvement. The Bible is not a, a book about you and your, what you're going through right now in every single step. I'm not, I mean, obviously it applies to you, but I'm not saying you're not the main character. You are not the main character. You're not so special and important that it's all about you. That's just a living, breathing narcissism. Okay, I'm going to make a joke about a friend I had in high school. Now, I, you know, before I throw my, this friend under, under the bus here, <laughs> I need to say this. This friend is a lot humbler than me right now. He is a very godly man, and I respect him very much. But come on, it was high school. <laughs> Who's not a little messed up in high school? No offense to high schoolers out there, right? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I mean, me in high school, it's like, you know, that was me. But so, you know, I mean, you know, this guy had a little bit of a narcissist, very godly, kind guy, one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. I'm serious, nicest human being ever today. I mean, this guy would give anything to somebody. He's so sweet and kind. But he had a little bit of a narcissist. We'll call it this. A narcissistic flash. Okay? And so, you know, me and this guy would, he's a Christian dude, you know, and we would hang out with this other friend of ours. Big, you know, heavy football guy. Tall, big guy. Big football guy. And so we watched movies together all the time, you know. And so, but he always found a way to make every movie about him. It was amazing. And, and he would always make us like the side gig, you know, characters. Every time. It was so... So, we, for instance, we watched Braveheart, right? And, you know, I hate to say this. I, I'm probably not surprised about this. But in high school, I was a class clown. I made all the jokes. I was a funny guy in high school and caused a lot of problems. So, you know... So he watches, and my friend's big, you know, and so what he does is he, he's like, okay, Nate, you're the Irish funny guy in Braveheart, and our friend Clark, he's like, you know, William Wallace's big, fat, strong, tall friend, and I'm William Wallace. You're like, oh, how, how convenient, buddy, that you've made yourself the center, and so he would do this over and over and over again in movies until me and my friend started making fun of him. Making of songs and joking. We actually, he said he was the center of The Last Samurai, too. So we made up a song, you know, I am the main character. And we would, like, mock him and make fun of him. He finally stopped doing it after that. And so we would, like, sing the soundtrack of Last Samurai to him, you know, making jokes. Because that's what high schoolers do. They make fun of each other, you know. You're not, anyways, I'll stop talking. And so... But yeah, we shouldn't do what my friend did to the Old Testament. Make yourself, oh, it's all about me. How can I be David and slay the giants in my life? That is self-centered, narcissistic reading of the Old Testament. And we're trying to make ourselves the hero. But you know what? Jesus is the hero, not us. He is the center of the Old Testament. And yeah, you're not the hero. You're the uh, sniveling, desperate enemy that the hero rescues. That's who, that's who you are. And Jesus himself says it in Luke 24, 25 to 27. He says, this Old Testament, all about me. 
Okay, he says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures. All the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So yeah, self-focus, making yourself, twisting it to be you. No, Jesus is the hero. He is the one that is the center of the story. And, and you know, uh, people, I think, struggle with this when you read some, a book, an Old Testament book that's tough. Uh, if you've ever read through it, you know it's tough. The book of Judges is a tough book. I mean, you read through that and... Let's just say there are some pretty rough things in that book. I mean, some violent acts are going on in that book. You're like, so we have this like very like dark, violent book of these terrible things happening in Israel with these judges that are all fallen and corrupt. How is that about Jesus, Nate? How, you're saying Jesus is the center. So how can Jesus be the center of a dark book, a very difficult book like Judges? It's very simple. The, the, the way that the Hebrew mind thought is that you, you point to the correct answer by eliminating all other possible answers. So yeah, the, you know, Israel needed judges to set up a kingdom. They failed. They needed a king to set up. They failed. A prof, they needed prophets. They failed. They were sinful. They were killed. You needed priests. The priests themselves were sinful. So we need a better priest, a better king, a better prophet, Jesus Christ. So all of it through people's failures and foibles points to the one who's going to succeed in our place, Jesus Christ. That's why the Old Testament laws are so difficult and so harsh. It shows you can't just pull a Nike and just do it. You can't pull this off. The Israelites couldn't. We can't. No one can. That's why we need Jesus. We need Jesus to be perfectly, perpetually obedient in our place and sacrificing for all of our sins because we can't do it through animal sacrifices. We can't do it through obeying laws. We'll be just like the Israelites, deported to Babylon because of our disobedience. So we desperately need the merit and active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of it points to Jesus in that way. I love how one pastor put it. The hub of Christianity is not do something for Jesus. The hub of Christianity is Jesus has done everything for you. And my fear is that too many people, both inside and outside the church, have heard our pleas for intensified devotion and conclude that the focus of the Christian faith is our love for God instead of God's love for us. Don't get me wrong, what we do is important. It's very important. But it is infinitely less important than what Jesus has done for us. So yeah, the focus of the Bible is not on the life of the Christian, but the life of the Christ. We are not the main characters, noble and true. Jesus is. He's the one who saves us. We are his enemies. We are sinners. We are fallen. He is a savior. He is a hero. He has come to rescue us. The whole Old Testament points to him, not us. And so when we understand, when we let that sacrifice that Jesus made for us, his whole life, every minute, every second, every hour of his life was done in sacrifice for you so that he can love you and know you for all eternity. When we realize how much he sacrificed on the cross, taking hell in our place. He suffered more than anyone for you when you realize that he, as Paul says in Galatians, he gave up his life for you and for me specifically. He died for me. 
He sacrificed everything for me and for you. When you know that he loves you that much, the, the self-absorption begins to be broken down. You start to think, well, maybe I'm not the most important thing in the world. Maybe God is, because look what God did. God is the most, objectively, the most important being in the world, and yet he in the person of Christ lowered himself, debased himself, received the greatest punishment ever for you and for me. Then all of a sudden, your self-centeredness starts breaking your heart and chips away at the narcissistic behaviors that you and I have, and we begin to start practicing self-forgetfulness and being focused on God and Christ, not ourselves. That's what all Christians, the Christian life is about a perpetual act of self-forgetfulness. Caring and thinking about others rather than ourselves. Us getting lost into Jesus so we can care for others, love others, and serve God. Now, the only way we do that is by, the only way we cultivate this very hard practice of self-forgetfulness is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's the only way. And, you know, it's hard just to see examples of self-forgetfulness, but... I found this week a, a true story about a little boy named Chad, and I, I believe it's just inspiring to see this from Christians. You know, this is what can happen if we are so laser-focused on Jesus Christ. This is what true self-forgetfulness can see in this little boy, this true story. I'm going to read this. So Chad was a shy, quiet young kid. And one day when he got home from school, and told his mother that he would like to make valentines for every single one of the students in his class. Her heart sank deeply because she had watched over and over again as, as the kids walked home together. They were all in a, you know, just a, just a group, joking, laughing, you know, being all boisterous, having a grand old time, while little Chad was in the back, you know, head down, kind of trottling behind them, excluded from the rest of the pack. So Chad was never included in with the other kids. You could just see it visually that his mother did at least. Nevertheless, the mom decided that she would go along with her son's idea for the Valentines. So she purchased the crayons, the paper, the glue for the Valentines. And so for a whole three weeks, he really planned ahead here. Chad poured his little heart into making this kind and caring Valentine's Day for uh, a gift and for each and every one of, this, of his classmates. Poured, just poured into it. And at the end of all of this, Chad painstakingly made 35 Valentines. So when Valentine's Day came around, Chad was just beyond excited just to give gifts to the students. He stacked up all 35 Valentines. You know, he's all, you know, he's all pumped up. Packed them and bolted uh, out the door for school that day. His mom was just so worried his mother would be, about, about the feeling, even after doing this, not being fully accepted by the kids, not being cared for by the kids. So Chad's mother thought, I know what I will do. I will make milk and cookies after school for Chad to make him feel better and help ease the pain of him not being fully accepted. It hurt her to think that he wouldn't get any Valentines at all, maybe none at all. That afternoon, she had the cookies and milk already on the table to help ease his pain. And when she heard the children coming outside, sure enough, here they came laughing, just having the best time together. And as always, Chad was in the rear. This time, he was walking a little faster than usual. His mother fully expected him to burst into tears as soon as he walked through the door. She noticed as he walked through the door that his arms were empty. 
And he had no valentine in his hand. And so she choked back the tears. She said, Mommy has some nice warm cookies and milk for you. But he hardly heard her words. He just marched right by, his face glowing with joy, and he kept on muttering, not a one, not a one, not a one. Her heart sank as she heard this. But then he said clearly, I did not forget a one, not a single one, not a single kid. Notice this child was not thinking about whether or not he got a valentine, but he was more focused on the fact that there was not a single child that he missed up or forgotten on Valentine's Day. And I have to admit, it's hard to find human examples of this because it's so other-focused, so self-sacrificial behavior in our day. And I have to admit, I fall short of that nearly every day. We all do. But the way to getting back to that and having this art of self-forgetfulness, as I said, is fixing your heart, your mind, your soul on Jesus and what he did for you, how he was perfectly self-forgetful, how he did not think of himself. He thought of you and me dying on that cross. He thought about saving us and being with us for all eternity as he was screaming on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The worst pain any human being has ever experienced for you and for me. And focusing on that, when I focus on that, I finally have the ability to forget about myself. I want to close with this quote that I've used in the past by Milton Vincent. The gospel reveals to me the breathtaking glory and loveliness of God. And in so doing, it lures my heart away from the love of self. And leaves me enthralled by him instead. The more I behold the God's glory in the gospel, the more lovely he appears to me. And the more lovely he appears, the more self fades into the background. Like a former love interest who can no longer compete for my affections. And the amazing thing I have found is being a pastor, husband, and a father, the more I focus on me and myself, the more sad and depressed I get, but the more I focus on God and others and what Christ has done for me. Ironically, the happier I become, the more blessed I become. And if you want to have this relationship with Jesus Christ, the best relationship, the one who loved you so much that he gave his life and died for you, then I would urge you to trust in Jesus this morning. There's nothing like knowing him. There's, there's nothing compared to that. And knowing him is eternal life. If you would receive and believe upon him, he will give you grace unending and love unending. I pray that you do so this morning. Let us go to, the, go to God now in prayer.